You are listening to the How to Talk to Girls podcast with me, Trip Kramer. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the How to Talk to Girls podcast. Today's episode, I like to call story time. So we are going to be talking to a very interesting man. His name is Doug. His name is Doug Bobst, and he is from Doug Bobst Fitness. I hope I didn't butcher his last name. It could be Bobst. But either way, his name is Doug, and he has a great story to tell. He was a former drug addict. And I don't mean in the sense where, you know, he was smoking weed every once in a while or partied every weekend. I'm talking serious addiction, doing all kinds of very hard drugs and so much of them that I'm surprised. And I said this to him on the episode. I'm surprised that he's alive. I think he's surprised too. And he wasn't planning on being alive. It was almost like he was taking himself to this very slow suicide. And he even says in the episode here, he wasn't sure if he was going to get past the age of 25. Well, he did eight years past 25. He's 33 years old and he's a fitness guru. And he is really inspiring to talk to of how he got into his drug addiction and then how he was able to get to the point where, by the way, he went to jail. You're going to hear that too. And then came out of jail and got completely clean. And now not only is he clean, but he's teaching people how to be healthier. And he was about 30, 50 pounds overweight. And now he's teaching people how to be healthy, how to be happy. It's quite, it's quite amazing. Incredible. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with, with meeting women? Why is this story on here? Well, that is talked about a little bit on this episode. But I just want to say that when you hear a story like this, that is insanely motivational. And it shows you that people have been able to accomplish such incredible feats and be able to come out of some of the hardest times of their life. I just hope that that would inspire you. It inspires me to be able to also do some of the hard things in your life, particularly to even dating. Maybe you can even have a moment where you say to yourself, there's a girl over there that I want to talk to. And man, it's so hard to go over there and say hello, but I'm capable of this. People are capable of so many amazing things, things that you would never believe that they could accomplish. If that can happen, why can't I go over and do that? And also, I think that this story helps you appreciate life more. And when you appreciate life, you take more chances and you do things that are hard. So it is an inspiring story. And I believe that you're going to get a lot out of it. And I know this is going to sound strange, but it's it's entertaining to say the least. It really sucks you in because he gives great detail into how bad things were. And I'm not entertained by his demise or his terrible time, but it's a story. And it sucks you in and you're just like, wow. And, and you know it's going to be a happy ending, right? Because I'm talking to him right now and he's a fitness guru. So you're just really sucked into this story. And I want you to hear it. And I had a good time interviewing him and talking to him about it. And I think you're just going to get a lot out of it. So I'll stop talking now and just get to the story. So here it is. Here's my interview with Doug. Hey, Doug, what's going on, man? 
trip, man. Excited for this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad to have you on. You have a, a podcast yourself, right? What's your podcast called? It's called The Adversity Advantage, where I interview people from all walks of life on their incredible stories and the tips and tactics that have been used to get them through hard times to become the best version of themselves. And it's been incredible, an incredible journey so far. We're a little less than a year in and had some amazing guests and hopefully helping a lot of people use adversity to become better, not make their lives worse. Let me ask you this real quick, just off the top of your head. Yeah. What is something that you've thought was really interesting or something you learned from any of your guests in the past, let's say, month? Is there anything that sticks out? It can be anything. Just anything that you learned that you were like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, one was, I mean, I, I've been interviewing a, a bunch of science people lately, like psychiatrists, neuroscientists, therapists, and I mean, not therapists lately, but I've had therapists on the show. And what I interviewed somebody whose episode actually came out today. Her name is uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she is the top 1% cited scientist in the world for her, her work on on neuroscience and psychology. And she, we talked a lot about emotions and how there's some common myths on how our emotions are made in the brain. And so many people think that, univer- that emotions are universal, that we all experience the same emotion based on situation. And it's false. So a guy like you, Trip, we'll just use this as an example. It's easy. If you were to go up to a, a random girl at a restaurant, in a grocery store, wherever, I'm sure you probably wouldn't be very nervous. You probably would have an idea of what you would say. You could carry on a conversation. But maybe one of your listeners or maybe myself or whoever that might not have as much experience as somebody like yourself who's like a dating expert, we might feel scared, anxious, nervous, fearful. So my point in that is, and this is what she opened my eyes up to, is that if emotions were universal, then you and I would have the same feeling no matter what our circumstances were when we went up to a girl. But they're not. They're based on our past experiences, our past patterning, behavior, the way we grew up. And it was eye-opening to me because I think a lot of times we feel that our emotions have, especially as men, have this, these grips on us, right? That, that we're paralyzed almost by the way we respond in situations and everything. And it was enlightening to know that there's some power that we do have in neuroplasticity and changing our environment, changing our our habits, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today, changing our health, changing the way that we speak to ourselves, that can change the way that our brain creates or guesses at emotions in the future. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah, really it was cool. awesome. And that's very true, right? I mean, what you say to yourself, the habits that you create, the actions that you take can dictate how you feel in all different types of situations, whatever that may be. Yeah, 100%. And it's kind of like the, the same thing with, I think, I don't know if she, this is the exact analogy she used, but I, I could be butchering it, but it was something similar to this. I forget how exactly it was. But I think, you know, think about somebody who's got stung by a bee as a kid. And the kid who got stung by a bee, if they see a bee 10 years later, they might be a little frantic, a little scared. Whereas if the same kid didn't get stung by a bee, maybe that bee, the bee you know, laid down on its finger and was super chill, like 10 years later, you probably wouldn't be as scared of the bee, right? Because your past experiences were a different story. And she talks a lot about those types of 
analogies where it's based on your past experiences, how you grew up. And so that that example, again, I don't know if it was the B example. I honestly may have butchered that a little bit, but it hopefully it gives the listener some context to it because I think it just is the notion of your show and helping men date better, become better versions of themselves so they can be more attractive to other partner. I think learning to understand and manage your emotions is very important. I've learned that through the years. It's been something that has completely changed the way I view and handle relationships because in my younger years, I had no control over my emotions at all. And in order to control them, subconsciously, I turned to things like drugs and uh, attention and manipulation to try to gain some sense of control over my emotions because I didn't want to feel them. I was afraid of feeling them. Whereas now that I've learned to have that dance with with how we are emotionally, I've been able to realize and understand why I have certain emotions and being able to make different decisions that align with who I want to be in the future so that my emotions around different situations can change. So what were some of the emotions that you were feeling? So, I mean, growing up, I... I had tons of insecurities, trauma, and pain just through a lot of stuff that I went through as a kid. My parents got divorced when I was five in a time where divorce wasn't nearly as common as it is today. I got bullied in school. I was told that it looked like I had Down syndrome. I never really made any of the sports teams. I was always cut, never picked first in, in gym. And I lo- even though I loved sports, diehard sports fan. So a lot of the emotions I was feeling at that time were fear. Like, am I ever going to get married? Will I ever find a girlfriend? Will I ever make a living? Will I ever have purpose? Will I ever have meaning? Or will I ever be happy? Anxiety. I was anxious, right? Because I was like, what's wrong with me? I was constantly trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Because I was like, why does everyone else have a girlfriend in high school and I don't? Why does why is everybody else making these teams and I'm not? Even though I have the same passion and drive for the same sports, just my abilities were just different. Why was I gaining weight at a young age, eating very similar things to my that my friends did and others weren't? And then I felt a lot of anger. I was angry at the world. I was like, why is why does nobody why do no girls love me? I was angry at that. Why am I not good at sports? I was angry at that. Why are my parents divorced? Why am I growing up in this environment? And it brought me to my knees. And, and then back then, I mean, I was a kid, but you know, you'd, I would ask, some people would say, what would you say to that person? And even though I don't know if I would have taken this advice, if I could have learned to have channeled those negative emotions and pain into something positive in that moment, I wouldn't have landed me into some pretty uh, hard times, which I got into later in my life. So I start I started to self-sabotage and self-medicate when I was 14 and I didn't want to feel those emotions at all. And I took a I started smoking weed when I was 14 and when I started smoking weed, mind you, when I first started smoking weed, I never thought in a million years that I would end up in jail because of that first hit. I never thought that it would end up leading to a horrific oxycontin habit. Nobody thinks that. And it wasn't like I love the taste of pot in that moment. I love the feeling that it gave me. It allowed me to check out and escape and not feel my emotions. So when I took that first hit, 
all my insecurities are gone. Boom. I didn't have to, I wasn't worried anymore about whether I would get married. I wasn't worried anymore if anyone would love me. I wasn't worried anymore if I was going to be happy or what my life was going to look like in the future. It was all gone. It was, it was, I was super like, numb and checked out. And so what ends up happening in situations like this, at least in my own experience, is you keep chasing that same feeling, that same numbing feeling. It's not that I loved, like I said, the taste of pot. It was like, I love the feeling of being numb. So I'm going to smoke more. I want to get more of that feeling because once you develop a tolerance, you have to do more of that thing to achieve that same feeling and began smoking every day and uh, began selling a little bit on the side to support my habit because I started to develop a pretty good habit smoking and you know making six, seven, eight dollars an hour at the job or whatever it was at the time couldn't support my now pot habit at the time. And I ended up how old are you at this moment? I was six. I was when I first started smoking, I was 14. When I got into selling it on the side, I was probably 15. And then on my 16th birthday, I was kicked out of my mom's house to go live with my dad full time because what had happened between the ages of like 14 and 16, me doing drugs and smoking pot, it created a strained relationship with my family, as you can imagine. Because back then it was much more stigmatized than it is today. And I, my mom just could, didn't know how to handle what, what, what I was going through. And so she kicked me out because I got caught selling a little bit to my little brother at the time. And sent to a different school thinking that if if it if I changed my friends and I got in a different environment that it would change my behavior. And in reality, we know it's not that's not true. I ended up finding just new friends to get high with. I had more pain, more trauma, more un- unhealthy emotions that I couldn't regulate because of the fact that I was now felt I was now going to a different school, scared, fearful, what are these people going to think of me? All the shame and everything around it. Continued to get high, found new friends to get high with. Ended up selling even more and barely graduated high school. And by the time I graduated high school, I started to experiment with cocaine. And I I alluded to earlier, I had anxiety growing up. So snorting cocaine and anxiety went about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and eat pizza every day. It just doesn't work. But my addictive behavior and me wanting to feel outside of myself and escape just felt like I needed to do coke anyway and be the cool kid and fit in. So one line of Coke led to me after a few months of doing it, doing like an eight ball Coke a day. And it it gave me... I don't know, man. And it gave me crippling anxiety. And in this, at this point, I'm I'm probably, I want to say I was like 18. And I now... So what happens is you start graduating classes and drugs. So you ha- once you only start smoking a little bit of weed just for fun, you hang out with the people who do that. Then once you start smoking more, you graduate. Then you start selling it. Then you start meeting different people. Then when you start doing hard drugs, you've graduated to a whole new class in the drug game. And I was meeting people that were now selling like a ton of drugs to make money. And I ended up selling a bunch of pot. And I was selling two, three pounds a week. Like It was probably enough, like $10,000 worth of pot a week to not only support my habits, but to make money. I, I did that for a while. And then I was, I was about 19 years old. And I hit a point where I was having horrible panic attacks. I didn't know how to deal with life anymore. And what ended up happening was there was an emergency room visit uh, that happened in my life where I was high on Coke one night, high on pot, smoking cigarettes. And I felt my heart racing. I felt all this pain 
And then my chest, my face went numb and I thought I was dying. I was like 50 pounds heavier than I am now. And I'm like, well, I'm on, I'm on all these drugs, potentially be dying. Because at this point I had buried several of my friends either to uh, drug overdose or drinking and driving and that sort of thing. And that didn't even scare you, which is the interesting thing. You were so <laughs> sucked into this addiction and your negative emotions that it didn't even hit you logically, it sounds like. No, it didn't, it didn't phase me in the slightest. I mean, yeah, it was scary. It was scary going to your friends' funerals and and being like in the same town as having friends that died. I mean, yeah, that's scary. But it's one of those things where you go to the funeral and you say you're never going to do it again, and then like you end up doing it the next day because you're like, wow, I have all this stress now. I have all this pain that consciously I don't even know I had. Right? Subconsciously, it was definitely there, knowing what I know about trauma and everything else. So my body was just so used to numbing itself when it dealt with adversity or dealt with anxiety or any kind of negative emotion. That's what I did. So I'm in the hospital. I'm in the ER. And one of the first things I did was I, I screamed, I'm dying, I'm dying. And they were like, sir, you need to sit down. Like They saw how young I was. And they're like, there's no way you could be having a heart attack and yelling like this. It's just not possible or something like that. And they tested my vitals and they were like, man, for all the stuff you say you do, you're one healthy guy. And I just I realized that it was anxiety and panic attacks. And I had no idea, like I said, what it was. I knew that I wasn't living the healthiest lifestyle, but I didn't really understand what panic attacks were. And I remember picking up a book and reading more about it. And what happened though, is I created this fear in my mind, another negative emotion that every time now I got high, that I would have a panic attack. Because anybody who's listening to this or maybe you or anyone who's experienced any kind of anxiety or panic, the thing that you're most scared of isn't the panic attack itself. Is when's the next one going to come? Is it going to come when I'm on a date? Is it going to come when I'm at the movies? Is it going to come when I'm on an airplane? That's the fear. And for me, I had attached the feeling of having an anxiety attack to getting high that I expected it every time. And so logically, like you said, in that moment, I could be like, okay, here's where my life's at right now. I could change my friends, change my habits, create better ways to deal with my shit and live a better life. Or I could stay on the same path that I've seen where it's gotten me in the, in the emergency room, buried several of my friends, bouncing from job to job, strained relationships, no girlfriend, that sort of thing. So the smart guy would have gone to the, my first option, but I was like, eh, that seems very hard right now. So what did I do? Well, I found a new way to self-medicate. It just so happened that one of my friends offered me a five milligram Percocet shortly after that. And I took it. And the same feeling I got when I first got high off of pot, I now got with the five milligram Percocet. And for anyone who's listening to this, it's that's where the, the highway to hell starts. If you have an addictive personality, you have a lot of pain and trauma like I had to numb. Five leads to 10 milligrams a day, 20, 40, 80, all the way up until the point by I'm like 20 years old doing three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin every single day. Have to snort 150, 160 milligrams just to get out of bed. Half my left nostril is missing. Didn't have a bowel movement for nearly a month. And my biggest setback at the time ended up becoming my biggest blessing. Cinco de Mayo, 2008. I was riding around with a few of my friends to go make a drug deal. Had a half a pound of pot. In my trunk, two thousand dollars in cash in the in the glove box, and and how old are you at I, this point? I'm twenty. And how and old are you I today? Had, I'm thirty three. Okay, so it was about thirteen years ago. Yeah, thirteen years ago, two thousand Cinco de Mayo of two thousand eight. 
It's crazy and, just hearing all these stories from you because <laughs> now I'm talking to you and I'm like, wait a minute, like I'm making this connection that I'm talking to present day you who is clearly not that person anymore. So this story is very interesting. I'm I'm curious to see where it goes. Continue. Yeah. Well, I want to give people some context and the choices I made that aligned with how I was feeling about myself didn't help get the very thing I wanted, which is to have a girlfriend and, and be confident and feel better about myself. I was doing all the things that pushed me further away from those goals. So I had a busted headlight when I was riding around making this drug deal that I had been meaning to fix for, for months. But as we know, like whenever we're doing or selling drugs, the only thing we care about when we're that far into our addiction is when are we getting high? How are we getting high? Who are we doing drugs with? Where are we getting it? That sort of thing. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. If you're not doing drugs to the certain level I'm doing it with or selling it to me, or I'm not selling it to you, you had no, I had no business you know, talking to you. What's, what's the cost right now in this story, at the point in the story of, of your daily habit? Like, what is it costing you per day? I mean, I think for the pills alone, it was easily two, three hundred bucks a day. And then, so I was selling a lot of weed. Like, everyone was like, You should have, are you saving any money? And I'm like, telling certain people that I didn't want to know how bad off I was that I was. And then other people who knew me knew that it was all going up my nose. So I was spending that. Then I was going to the strip club several days a week, which that was another couple hundred bucks. And then I ate out all the time. So I would eat, you know, four or five double cheeseburgers from McDonald's, like a large Coke and fries. And, and then, all this is adding to the depression too. Yeah, because now you're feeling even worse about yourself, right? Because I mean, I think your brain, it gives you this false sense of, of hope that if you eat junk food, it's going to make you happy. But it's a total, it's a total mind fuck. Right. No, totally. I was in college and I was eating two meals a day, and it, they were both fast food. Yeah. And I was drinking, just partying during the week, and I had some pretty bad depression for yeah. a couple of years in college. Luckily, it didn't lead to anything more than fast food and drinking and the occasional smoking weed. But it was. It was just a, a tough time in life because you just have these bad habits. But back to you. Well, no, you're 100% right. And so what happened was a cop was running radar. It's Cinco de Mayo, right? It's like one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. So instead of just being low-key and casually driving by, I'm like, oh, I'm going to flash my high beams at him so he doesn't know that I had a busted headlight. When in reality, that gave him a reason to pull me over, A, because I was flashing my high beams at him. And B, like when you flash your high beams at somebody, you're typically letting them know there's a cop ahead. So he pulls me over. And subconsciously, I think I wanted to get busted because I remember him, you know, pulling me over and he asked me if he could search the car. And I said, yes, which is like, it's like rule number one when you're selling drugs. If you're riding dirty, cop pulls you over. Don't say anything. If he asks you to search the car, say no. Unless, I mean, because he had no real reason to. I mean, he found an open container of beer in my car, but there was no reason to look for anything else. I mean, without my permission. And he pulls me out of the car, puts me in handcuffs and searches the rest of the car, finds the half a pound of pot in the trunk, finds the $2,000 in cash. And I remember sitting in the back of the cop car and thinking in that moment that my life was over. And I think when we're in these types of situations, trip, I don't know if anyone who's listening to this has ever been through this, you're like, how did I get here? Every bad decision I made came to a point, it came to this big point. And I was like, how did I end up here? How did a kid 
who, who was sweet, who was kind, who just wanted to be loved, who had aspirations, had some dreams, wanted to be an astronaut, wanted to be in the FBI, like had goals. How did he end up in the back of a police officer's car facing felony drug charges potentially? And I just remember looking at all the bad choices through, they all flashed before me. And I was just, I was so scared. I mean, my heart was in the pit of my stomach. I was crying. I was shaking. I was, it was the biggest buzzkill ever. I mean, we were on our way, we were on our way to get high and then that happens, right? It's one thing if like your dealer was late. It's another thing if there's traffic, getting busted and, you know, the cops finding a ton of drugs is a whole other story. And I got taken to jail and was charged with the felony intent to distribute marijuana and went to court a few months later. And the judge sentenced me. So this is September of 2008. The judge sentenced me to five years, uh, suspended everything but 90 days, meaning if I messed up at any point during my probation, didn't do my community service, I could have served the full five years. So I only had to do the 90 days in jail. Five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me, he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old. This conviction is going to haunt you the rest of your life. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, all the stipulations, if you do your jail time, if you do your community service, if you pay all your fines, if you don't fail drug tests, you report to parole and probation every time you're supposed to, I'll take the felony conviction off your record at the end of the five-year probation. He's like, you're going to want to do this. And I had I had no idea what the importance of that was at that time. I was like, eh, whatever. I was like, isn't the world supposed to end in 2012? And I'd already buried some of my friends. So I didn't live, I didn't expect to live to see my 25th birthday. So at that point, I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll take it. End up reporting to jail a week after my 21st birthday, which is a few weeks later. The judge gave me a few weeks to gather my belongings, I guess, get my, my house in order a little bit before I reported to jail. And I remember walking into these gates at the detention center. I mean, if you think about, if you think I had anxiety and fear and anger when I was 14, when I started getting high, you can only imagine what I felt walking through these gates. As somebody who was the most unathletic, unbalanced, uncoordinated kid ever, I was so scared, terrified what was going to happen to me. I had no idea. Like you hear the stigmas of what happens in jail. And I was like, this is definitely going to happen to me. I'm going to be the guy that gets the, the crap beaten out of me. I'm going to be the guy that gets taken advantage of. Because I was always the guy who ran from fights. I was always the guy who never stood up for myself. I was always the guy who had no confidence in who I was. So I knew I would get destroyed by anybody who, who tried to come at me. Because that's what I had. That was the vision I had in, of jail. And I get in there. And so the last thing I did before I walked into jail was I snorted like a, 150 to 200 milligrams of Oxycontin. And I was like, well, this is it. <laughs> this is the last time I'm doing this. Like, even though part of me was like, oh, I'm going to get out or I'm going I'm to do it again when I get out. But in that moment, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I, I got into this, the general booking area into the pods and I started detoxing cold turkey for three weeks off of the Oxycontin. Which what anybody, was that like? Oh, man. So if anybody's ever experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it, it was like having the, the worst possible case of the flu. Like all the bad symptoms of the flu all at once. Uncontrollable vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, uncontrollable bowel movements, constantly shaking, anxiety, depression, aches and pains. The worst part of it though, Trip, was you feel like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin. You feel like you're trying to leave your body. And what's fascinating is I'm looking at myself now back then 
that feeling I was experiencing was all of my pain, all of my trauma, all my negative emotions, all my negative, all my unhealthy habits were leaving me. But in that moment, I was like, what is going on with me? Why does it feel like I'm literally trying to leave my body? Like, why does it feel like that? And I ended up uh, meeting a guy, my soon to be cellmate, who was a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club, is kind of the analogy I use. And he was like, You're going to start working out with me, man. I was like, What? I was like, No way, dude. If you see me at the time, I could have been a model for Pillsbury. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. He's like, All right, man. So that night, I remember watching him work out and he did, was doing thousands of push ups, hundreds of pull ups, running in the common area. And I was like, Who is this guy? And he begged me to start working out with him. He's like, dude, you're going to feel so much better if you exercise. You got to turn some of that negative emotion to something positive. And I had no idea about that, those benefits of exercise. I just knew I always had a vision and goals to have abs and have big arms and look good. But I never had any confidence in myself that I would ever get there because I'd failed everything else in my life. And I remember after him bugging me for a while in there, I decided to, to try it out. I decided to get down and do a push-up in front of a bunch of grown men in the common area. He was training me there and, and could barely do one for my feet, could barely do one for my knees. And in that moment, I was like, what the heck? Why can't I do a push-up? And I remember he looked at me and he said, because you're fat. I hated that, <laughs> I hated that word, man. It's hate- simple enough. Right. I hated it. But it was true. And I, I'm, not, I'm not the guy even today. Like, I don't like sugarcoating things. For me, it, I want the straight hard truth. If I got something wrong with me, if I got something I need to fix or address, just shoot me straight with it. Don't peter around the bush. And I think it stemmed from that because even though in that moment, I hated that word. I, it triggered me. It made me cringe. But I knew it was what I needed to hear. And I think good coaches, good friends, good partners, good anybody in your life, the people that I surround myself with, don't tell me what I want to hear during those times. They tell me what I need to hear. And it motivated me. So I was like, what the heck have I, what's, what's gotten into me? I can't even barely walk up. I can barely walk up and down the steps. I can barely do a push up. I'm huffing and puffing. And he trained me in there during my 90 day sentence. And we set some goals. The goal is sort to do a set of uh, 10 push ups and run a mile by the time I left my sentence. And with his motivation and encouragement, I was able to do it. I was able to do that 10 push-ups and, and run a mile by the time I left. And I felt this sense of accomplishment and confidence I never had in my life. Because I had also lost like 10 to 15 pounds along the way. And I just I had this light bulb go off in my head. I'm like, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna beat this drug addiction that I never thought I could beat. And it wasn't just because of the push-ups and the sit-ups, it was how they made me feel. Yeah, I actually, right? Self-esteem. I actually stuck to something that I knew I should have been doing. I kept the affirmations and promises and everything else that I, I told myself I wanted to do every single day. I said, all right, I'm committing and affirming that I'm going to work out, that I'm going to love myself enough to invest in my body. And I did every single day. It was also, it developed some sense of routine in me that I never had. I never had discipline or routine and helped me build that. But it also allowed me to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Like one of the biggest fears as a trainer I know of people who go to the gym is they're scared of what people are gonna are gonna think of them when they're doing certain exercises. So clearly I had that. But I couldn't do a push-up in front of a bunch of grown men. So that helped me out with that really quick. And it also helped me, more importantly, deal with and manage my emotions in a healthy way 
that I never had been able to do before. It helped me kind of rewire some neural pathways in there so that I was able to reattach certain behaviors to emotions. Because previously, before I went to jail, when I was anxious, depressed, stressed, angry, you name it, drugs were always the answer. Drugs, strip club, acting out, whatever it was. But now I was like, wow, there's power in this. If I'm angry or if I'm stressed or I'm anxious, I can run. And it might not feel as great. It's not like you when, you when you start running within two minutes of it. I mean, I would, at least for me, it wasn't that I was like, hmm, stress is gone. I, I, I feel amazing. When I got done though, man, my stress definitely subsided and I felt some sense of accomplishment because I was able to do something positive with the pain that I had, which I wasn't able to do before. And it gave me confidence like, oh, this works. I can do this again. And I just started building these good habits and stacking my days with positive ways to deal with the stress. So at the end of my 90-day sentence, like I said, I've been able to, I was able to run a mile, do a set of 10 push-ups, and now I'm ready to go out on my own. So the interesting thing is when I went to jail, when I walked through those gates, I was crying because I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go in. When I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. Because I yeah, it was, it was your most positive experience that you probably had in the past 10 years. Yeah, it's weird because I'm like, I had fun in jail. I mean, not like, in, <laughs> I mean, not fun, like, you know, going on vacation and going on a cruise fun, but I was like, you know, I made the most of it. But I think the most fun part of it for me was I was able to get naked with myself and work on the stuff that I'd never worked on in a way that was productive for who I wanted to be in the future. And I remember the day I left, I asked my cellmate, I was like, man, how am I ever going to repay you? He's like, don't mess up and just pay it forward. And I never knew what paying it forward meant. I was 21 years old. I was like, yeah, what's that mean? Whatever. I was like, all right, I'll do whatever I can not to mess up. I was like, I'm never coming back here ever, ever. I remember I was so uncoordinated trying to do like the moonwalk when I left. because I was like, I'm never coming back. I'll see you guys later. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from. I got out, followed the plan. Ended up hiring a trainer, lost 50 pounds, and then got to a place where I wanted to help other people use fitness to change their lives. And I became a personal trainer back in April of 2011 and was working at a wellness center and was very blessed. They gave me a a shot because I was a convicted felon at the time. And you know, you kind of know when things are flowing and things are aligned because things just happen. You don't have to force it. And I was very grateful to build a very successful personal training business. And my new high became helping people change their lives through fitness, through changing their mindset, through shifting their perspective. And sure enough, time flew by and my probation was up and I, I had completed all the stipulations my, the judge had given me. I did the community service. I never missed a probation appointment, never failed a drug test, did my jail t- sentence, obviously, did everything else. And it was time to write to him for modification of my sentence to have him kind of fulfill his end of the bargain. And one of my clients is a lawyer and we wrote him a letter for modification. He granted me my day in court. And in January of 2014, he took the felony conviction off my record. And I never realized in that moment how much someone's life can change in a matter of seconds from being shackled as a convicted felon, not being able to vote or own a firearm or leave the country or whatever my rights, the rights I didn't have were, to now being a free man and not having to check that box anymore. And it really hit home with me. I was like, man, I, I want to be more than just a trainer. I don't want to just be someone who's counting sets and reps. While I love that, I was like, I think I've been kept alive to share my story. 
And that inspired me to write my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free, to help people make the most of their second chance, turn a negative into a positive, and focus on how far they've come and not how far they have to go. And once that came out, people really started to align with my story. And I, I got very more confident in myself because I owned the shadows in my past. I had no skeleton. All my skeletons were out when I when you write, a, write a book like that. There's nothing to be ashamed of ever, anymore. What's I mean, the book called? From Felony to Fitness to Free. And I mean, I cool. still had some shame and resentment, but a lot of it was lifted off of me because now my past was out there. And then after that happened, I've just been on a tear to share my story and help other people. And I've written a total of three books now and been able to share my story and get on media outlets. Like I was in the Today Show and Men's Health, and Cheddar and Impact Theory of Tom Bilyeu, Rich Roll's podcast, and so many others. And I, that's why I started my podcast was to to help other people use their darkest times of their life like I did to their advantage to come out uh, better versions of themselves. I mean, that is a absolutely crazy and beautiful <laughs> story. Thanks, man. You know, I've I've heard of stories like that before, but really not with this kind of detail. And and also just really diving into what your thought process was through this whole thing. I mean, one of the hardest things in the world is kicking drug addiction. And you were addicted to a lot of hard stuff. And not only did you kick it, but you came out of it to the point where now you're helping people and you're clean and sober and you're able to help others when you couldn't. So you went from not even being able to help yourself to now helping others. That jump right there, in my opinion, is a very large jump. So it's just so cool that you've been able to come here on this episode today and, and share that with us. And, and what I gather from it is just motivation. You know, it's, it's very motivating and inspiring to hear how someone can be lower than low and then still be able to fight their way through it and get to a second chance, and which sounds like an amazing place in your life. You know, going on podcasts, writing a book, going on uh, news shows. That's really incredible. So kudos to you for being able to do that. And I hope that this story inspires anyone else who is maybe going through something similar. I don't know. Maybe there are people who are listening who are alcoholics, drug addicts, or maybe even beyond drugs and alcohol, maybe just in a really tough spot in their life where they have anxiety or emotional problems, lots of stress. But it is possible to get through it if you have the courage and the motivation. I'm curious, before we end the episode here, what was the one thing that really saved you? Like maybe something that you said to yourself. Like I know that you had your cellmate and he helped. And you know, just going through this whole terrible experience was motivation in itself to come out. But was there anything that you said to yourself or anything that you worked on that made such a big difference that you can share with guys that maybe they can use? Yeah, I, I think one of the main things that I realized is like external things are never going to make me happy. I think I, yeah. I chased things like drugs to make me happy or I thought that having a girlfriend was going to fill me up or looking a certain way or being a certain person or running around with a certain crowd. That I realized didn't work. Right, that was one thing, and then being very confident in the way you talk to yourself was everything for me. 
Because for the longest time, I told myself that I was fat. I told myself for the longest time that I was ugly. I told myself for the longest time that I would never have a girlfriend. Because I believed those lies that people said to me through the years. And then I started to believe them myself. And that started to be the truth that I believed about who I was as a person. That carried on with me throughout my life. So what do you think that's going to do to your confidence? If every single day you're telling yourself that, every day, it's not going to help at all. So when I was in jail, I had to change the way I talked to myself. Instead of saying, you are fat, I was just saying, you are getting healthier. Instead of saying, you are ugly, you're just saying, you are getting better. Like Switching the context and how I talked to myself helped so much. And then one of the other things that I would say was a game changer was fitness. And I can't emphasize this enough. And I'm not just saying this because it helped me and it helped when I'm a trainer. It's just from a logical standpoint. Like fitness, like think about it. There's four levels of fitness. There's emotional fitness, there's mental fitness, there's spiritual fitness, and there's physical fitness. You can be emotionally, mentally, and spiritually fit, right? You can, you know, you can go to therapy, you can manage your emotions, you can meditate, you can go to church, do all these things. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be physically fit. But if you're physically fit, it can enhance those other levels of your fitness so much more. And fitness is one of those interesting things where it can be a catalyst for change, right? Because what happens when you end up doing something you never thought you could do? So for me, it was doing push-ups. You end up saying, well, what's next? So for me, it was like, all right, what's next? I I can do one push-up. Now I'm going to do two. What's next? I'm going to do five all the way up to 10. But when I got out of jail, what was next? Now I'm going to try and do 20. Well, what's next? I'm going to do 30. Well, what's next? I'm going to try and change my nutrition. What's next? I'm going to try and change my community around me. What's next? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to share my story. I'm going to ask a girl out that I had never done. Right? And Because what happens is you start to build equity in your confidence bank by doing things that scare you and that are uncomfortable. On the other side of fear is confidence, is self-esteem, is peace. And I just invite people to know that you know, fitness can be a great starting point for people that want to make this transformation or want to get better at talking to women. Because when you build true confidence within yourself and you know that you're on a certain path for a reason and that you love yourself no matter what you are, who you're with, then whether you get rejected by a girl is here nor there because you know you're on the path yeah, and that you're confident with who you are and that you'll find something better. Awesome. Dude, super inspiring. <laughs> Thanks. Really enjoyed that story from beginning to end. Just like, wow, where is this going? How did you <laughs> get there? Because I know the ending. Yeah. Because I, you know, you're here on the podcast and I've gone through your website and your YouTube videos and, and things like that. So again, bravo, kudos to you. So cool that you were able to make such a massive transformation in your life. If do you do coaching or you know what would you like to promote? Do you work with guys or is it just maybe you want them to check out your book? I mean, I would just say if people could subscribe to the podcast, The Adversity Advantage, that would be awesome. And let me know your feedback on that. And then yeah, as far as coaching, I mean, I'm always doing one-on-one coaching for fitness, or I do like a blended um, like mindset lifestyle coaching where I help people uh, restore balance, hope, and purpose in their lives through a coaching program I do and. It's very experiential in the sense that I, I just I, I share things based on my life experiences and what's worked for me. And then we kind of pick and choose 
the angle and the path that the person wants to take based on their values and where they're at in their life. Cool. Awesome. So we will put a link in the show notes for that. Doug, you're the man. Thanks (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Awesome to hear your story. And maybe we'll have you back on in the future and talk more about some fitness stuff. But for now, that was pretty killer. So thank you very much for joining us. You got it, man. Anytime. I loved it. Thanks for having me on.